This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for Story Hour in the Library. We'd like to thank our author tonight, Ayelet Waldman, for joining us with her new book, Love and Treasure. We'd also like to thank Mrs. Dalway Bookstore, who will be selling her book, and um, hopefully she will do a signing for us after the reading. So please feel free to go there and purchase. If you're interested in learning more about Story Hour, you can visit our website, storyhour.berkeley.edu. You can see our full season lineup. Um, We're actually planning for next year's season, as well as any of the video casts on there if you missed any of our lectures in the past. Hi. Uh, It's a pleasure to welcome Arlet Waldman today to Story Hour. She was born in Jerusalem and grew up mostly in New Jersey. She graduated from Wesleyan University and then went to Harvard Law School. She worked as a federal public defender in Los Angeles um, and then began publishing a mystery series featuring a public defender who gives up her job to be a full-time mother but who finds herself investigating murders and other sundry crimes as well. Um, Eilet then published Daughter's Keeper, a novel about a young woman, Juliet, who suddenly finds herself under arrest because of a boyfriend's secret meth business. Juliet and her mother Elaine struggle against the implacable forces of the so-called war on drugs with a possible 10-year sentence looming over Juliet. The New York Times described Daughter's Keeper as a a gritty novel that portrays the innocent people who are caught in the middle of this war. And also praised the book, I quote, for its incisive portrayal of Elaine as a reserved, indifferent mother who views her relationship with Olivia as a mandatory minimum sentence until she discovers in her daughter a surprising role model. Daughter's Keeper was a finalist for the 2003 Northern California Book Award. Since then, Eilid has published three more novels and a memoir. The novel Love and Other Impossible Pursuits was described by the New York Times as a moving and darkly funny read. Lover and other, Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, the reviewer wrote, in addition to being a romantic, shocking, and sometimes painful page-turner, does the unthinkable. It actually says something new and interesting about women, families, and love. Her memoir, Bad Mother, has the subtitle, A Chronicle of Maternal Crimes, Minor Calamities, and Occasional Moments of Grace, uh, which subtitle alone should make you want to read it. The reviewer for the Oregonian observed, Bad Mother is full of blistering honesty and brutal self-assessment. For any woman who has questioned her maternal fitness, Waldman's book is nothing short of a revelation. Eilid's latest book, Love and Treasure, opens in 1945 when American soldiers capture a train laden with riches looted from Hungarian Jews by Nazis. Um, And I guess I'll I'll shut up and let you talk about it. Yeah, okay. Uh, But I will say, a reviewer in the San Francisco Chronicle wrote, Waldman reaches thoughtfully into an epic suite of complex issues related to identity, home, dislocation, and feminism, and illuminates her ideas through the critical junctures of the journey. In the end, as readers, we gain a deeper understanding of what it means to covet and what it means to love. Eilet's essays and profiles have appeared in the New York Times, Vogue, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Her radio commentaries... Uh, have appeared on All Things Considered and the California Report. She lives in Berkeley with her husband and her children. Please join me in welcoming Eilid Holman. Hello. So um, I'm going to do something I have never done for any book before, which is I'm not going to read from the book. I'm actually just going to, to do this kind of keynote PowerPoint thing. Um, and talk about the book and talk about the, the where, essentially, the, 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 sub, the talk is called The Itinerary of an Idea, Finding the Gold Train. Um, and the reason for this, I will tell you why I'm doing this. The reason for this is because a few summers ago, I was in a library in Maine with a, a, a new novelist, not a young novelist, but a new novelist, who wrote a very, very good book. And it was his first reading. And he asked two writers to open for him to each read a little bit from their books. And the first writer got up and read about 20 minutes. And it was wonderful. He's a great writer, Jonathan Lethem. I could have heard him read for another, you know, 20. But he read for 20 minutes. And the second writer was my husband, Michael Chabon. And Michael Chabon looked at his watch and looked at the other reader. And he got up and instead of reading, I think he read for like a page and a half and then said, and take it away to this next writer. And that writer read for 45 minutes... 
And then he paused, and he put his finger in the pages of his book, and he said, Shall I go on? And before I could muster the strength to scream no, he then read for another 45 minutes. And um, it was among the most boring evenings of my life. And I vowed at that moment that I would only under pain of death do another reading, that I would figure out another way to talk about a book without simply reading from it. I actually like readings, but I, I have PTSD. So what we're going to do now is we're going to um, we're going to talk about this book in a different way. So there is there's an there's a question in any gathering of writers that and in any reading in any talk that in the Q and A one of the very first questions invariably is this one and it is a question all writers despise. Anyone have any ideas what it is? You must know. Where do you get your ideas? Writers despise that. It makes them squirm. Noted authors have called it the world's most annoying question. Do you know, anybody know who this is? Stephen King. So when Stephen King is asked that question, the world's most annoying question, where do you get your ideas? He answers with what I think is actually the best rep- response, Utica. <laughs> he gets his ideas in Utica. Okay, so why do we hate this question so much? Why do writers resent this question? Because it's actually a, a totally normal, reasonable question, right? The reason we resent the question is that we fear it. And the reason we fear it is because the source of the idea is so often embarrassingly silly. Um, so today I'm going to talk to you about where I got the idea for the novel Love and Treasure, which is out from Knopf now and available from the wonderful Mrs. Dalloway's in the corner. Um, and yes, of course I will sign it for you. And if you don't have me sign it, I'll sign everything else in the library. So you should, you should do as a public service to avoid the vandalism. Bring me the book to be signed. Um, so I'm going to talk about the magical source of inspiration for this novel, which was not Utica, but Google. I googled three words, Holocaust, Hungary, and art. That's how I got the idea for this novel. Um, Obviously, that was not random typing. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go through each of those individual search terms and tell you how they came to be in the same search on Google and explain this... uh, this incredibly prosaic and mundane the genesis of the novel. I hope that the talk won't be prosaic and mundane, but you'll have to tell me afterwards. Okay, so I grew up a fairly stereotypical young Jewish girl in the suburbs of New Jersey, which means that I was Holocaust-obsessed, I think is a safe way of putting it. As a child, I was a compulsive reader, and my mother used to dread scholastic books when it would come because everybody else's scholastic book order was like Nancy Drew and Judy Bloom, and mine was basically a tour through Treblinka. I only ever ordered books about kids who survived the ghettos, kids who hid from the Nazis, kids who went to the camps. The farthest a field I got was this book, Summer of My German Soldier. Are there any other 40-something, 50-something women in the audience who remember that book so fondly? I would curl up in a chair in my parents' living room, and I would read these books, and I would just sob and sob. And I would engage, of course, there's the, the sort of... The, the queen of them all, the diary of Anne Frank. I would gauge in this kind of elaborate and tragic and even romantic fantasy in which I was sometimes a survivor and sometimes I sacrificed myself for my family or for my very, very handsome boyfriend. It was this very elaborate role-playing almost about the Holocaust. Bizarre, Right. Um, And, you know, I don't think that I was alone in this. I mean, one of the reasons for this is that I went to Hebrew school three times a week. Anybody else go to Hebrew school three times a week? Um, That's what they did when I was a kid. Three times a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Sundays for double classes. And much of the curriculum in Hebrew school revolved around the Holocaust. I mean, we were shown all of the most horrible photographs, and I'm not going to show you any truly horrible ones. But, for example... 
This is a photograph of shoes taken from victims at Auschwitz and piled up. Um, I couldn't stop looking at these photographs. They obsessed me. Um, this is another photograph that's quite famous. It's bales of, ha- of hair shorn from the heads of victims um, also at Auschwitz. And, you know, when I started, before I began writing this book, I started thinking, why is it? Why is it that so many adolescents, me included, are so obsessed with the subject of the Holocaust. I mean, I was like a totally normal kid. This is to show you just how normal I was. Um, This is a map of New Jersey, and there is my red Aspen station wagon and my Farrah Fawcett hair. Um, But, you know, there is nothing in my personality that would incline me to the morbid, but I think the truth is, is that adolescents are inclined to the morbid. They're very busy in the project of trying to figure out who they are, And when you're an American Jewish teenager, the Holocaust figures hugely in the identity of your family, the teachers in Hebrew school. And while you're trying to figure out who you are, you're also learning that someone tried to kill people who shared your religion because of who they were. So um, it, it becomes very fraught and emotionally tangled up in your mind. I mean, we all know that independent of the Holocaust, kids like these dark, violent stories, right? They love these tales. And when you think about it, like, how, how different is Escape from Warsaw, the book? I mean, it's actually benign compared to something like Freddy Krueger, which teenagers watch compulsively over and over again. So for me, this, uh, this obsession kind of faded after adolescence. But then I had a baby, And I suffered after my first child from something called postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder, which sounds like it means that you did a lot of cleaning, but in fact is this truly awful disorder that I had my first child before the advent of Google, my favorite idea generator. And so I couldn't actually just Google my symptoms and find out what was going on. But rather, I, I was locked in this, uh, this elaborate circle of thinking that I was this terrible mother because what characterizes postpartum OCD are these very intense, very specific images of murdering your baby. And they're common across the sufferers. So women who ha- suffer from the disorder have thoughts of stabbing their baby Really vivid images, not just sort of idle, but like very vivid images. Images of drowning the baby during a bath. Images of boiling the baby in a pot of water. So you have this. You can't Google your symptoms. You just think you're crazy, right? Um, The thing is, women with postpartum OCD never, ever harm their babies, but they have an astronomical suicide risk. Um, Why? Because they're afraid they're going to hurt their babies. It's terrifying. Um, and my postpartum OCD had all of those traditional vivid imageries, but it also included these incredibly elaborate Holocaust images. So, and I would, unlike when I was a child, I was no longer sort of the romantic teenage protagonist. I was a mother trying to deal with these things. And I would lie in bed at night with my baby sleeping in my arms, and I would fantasize about what I would do if I were in a cattle car with this baby and the baby needed her diaper changed and what would I have done and what do the mothers do and how do you, what when you ran out of food and your milk dried up and all of these, like, you know, over and over again for hour after hour after hour, these strange details of what it must have been like to be a mother of small children during the Holocaust. Um, And the thing about being a writer is that when something starts to obsess you, something starts to nag at you, you can only think of one way out. And your way out of this obsession, your way out, there's lovely comfy chairs up here if you want to take them. The, your way out of this obsession is to write about it. And this is, as soon as I started writing, that's how I began to deal with all of my own drama and agita and pain and anxiety. I immediately turned to the computer and started writing. So for example, many years ago, I ended a pregnancy due to a bad genetic diagnosis, which was a terribly traumatic experience for me. And for a long time, I wrote about little else, but I wrote kind of around the experience. So the first thing I wrote was the novel that you heard about, Daughter's Keeper, which is about a mother who has to leave her baby and go to jail. The next thing I wrote was a ghost story about a mo- of about a woman haunted through her baby monitor by the ghost of her stillborn baby. 
Yeah, creepy as all hell. Finally, I ended up sort of purging that experience by confronting it dead on and writing a, a novel about a woman whose baby dies of SIDS. And that's how I kind of got through that. And, and the Holocaust would nagged at me in the same way. I wanted to write about it. I, I, I began thinking about writing about it as soon as I finished Daughter's Keeper. But there is a real problem in writing about the Holocaust. It is incredibly hard not to be exploitative. I like to think of this as the life is beautiful problem. I, you may love that movie. To me, it exemplifies the worst end of the spectrum, a kind of feel-good fable about a death camp. I hate it. It stands for everything I don't want to do. It feels so completely inauthentic to me. But then I found out that Benini's own father survived Bergen-Belsen. So what felt inauthentic to me was actually based on personal lived experience, which means things are, it's really complicated, right? Even the authenticity of lived experience is no guarantee of artistic authenticity. It's incredibly discouraging when you think about whether you want to write about the topic. And, and you add on to that the fact that, you know, bleakness is not a selling point to contemporary publishers. It's very tempting to try to think of a way to make the topic life-affirming, Right? And if you do, you end up with books that feature, you know, the one good Nazi or the magic realist approach to writing about the Holocaust, for which I blame my husband, whose book this is. Um, I think he did it really, really well in Cavalier and Clay. But it's a really short step from using the golem to illustrate the powerlessness of the Jews to things like this, which is a menu in Prague a, where Golem's anger is chicken satay with rice. Um, the, the possibility of exploitation lurks around every corner. Um, you know, you see books, again, I may be citing a book that you love, but forgive me, books that use the Holocaust the way sometimes books use the, 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 a dead child, which, you know, I'm guilty of too. Is, it's like a trick for easy emotion. The problem is that it, that can lead to the most offensive and crass kind of Holocaust kitsch. So if you liked the book Sarah's Key, you can dress in Sarah's style. See, their little shopping guide so that you too can look like a Jew being deported from the velodrome. Um, but there are works, there are works that illuminate this period of our history without exploiting. And for me, the quintessential example of that is the writer W.G. Zebald and his book Austerlitz. This is a book about the Holocaust without a single scene in the camps or even really outside of England during this period. And for me, that's, that stood as this kind of paradigm of what I wanted to achieve. In a very early draft of the novel, I actually wrote two scenes that took place in Dachau based on descriptions of incidents recounted by members of the Rainbow Division. This was a, the 42nd Infantry Division of the U.S. Army. That's the division that liberated Dachau. And there's this volume that you see here, here all of their memoirs, um, written and oral histories of that, the, that time, when they, that, that day and the days when they liberated Dachau. The scenes that I wrote at Dachau, the two scenes in particular, are, I would say, probably my best writing ever. They're full of details. They're incredibly complicated and rich. The first one is about this train that these officers found. When they pulled up, in, when the first U.S. Army Division pulled up in front of Dachau, they found this train full of bodies. Um, I know this is a hard picture to look at. The train was full the long cars were full, but the bodies were so recently dead that they had not yet begun to rot. There was no smell. Um, and one photograph in particular compelled me. There was a single survivor of that train, who was, and he was found by American liberators. And there's a very famous photograph here that you see here. This is the, um, uh, an officer and an and, um, enlisted man, or maybe a sergeant, finding this single survivor of this train. But if you look at this photograph, you can see that it's composed and well lit. So what that means is that most likely the 
they heard a voice. This is in this they, this that part we know because they talk about it. And they jumped up into the car and they found the man and they pulled him out. And then they paused for a second for the photographer to join them. And there was something about that that instant hesitation for as long as it took to compose that photograph that I found incredibly compelling. And I, and I wrote that scene. I also wrote a scene about an incident that you see here. Um, there was an execution. There, there were a number of executions during the time that the Rainbow Division was in Dachau. When they, in, when they first found... When they first entered the camp, the SS fought back very hard. There was a remaining unit of SS officers, and they fought back. So picture the young Americans. They're walking into the camp. It's the first time any of them have seen a camp. They've heard rumors, but nobody believed the rumors, certainly not the young Americans, really believed the rumors they were hearing. And they suddenly come upon this camp, and it's full of the most horrific things you can imagine. Bodies everywhere, starving children, people... You know, they had never seen people who looked like that. And then these SS officers fighting with them. And there was, when they finally suppressed the SS and were bringing them out and arresting them, there was one young American officer who found, who saw a few of his men in the distance and went to join them. And he said, what's going on? Why aren't you bringing this SS officer up to the front where we're arresting, you know, we're we're gathering all the SSs and taking them off to um, prison, essentially, to, you know, be prisoners of war. And the enlisted men said, he won't surrender to us. And the Nazi said, as an officer of this rank, I am entitled under the rules of war to surrender to an officer of same rank or higher. And I refuse to surrender unless I am given the opportunity to surrender to a man of the same rank or higher. So They've just seen all of this death, and here's this man now citing to them the rules of war. And the young American officer lifted up his gun, and he shot the SS officer in the head and killed him. Um, That's a war crime, perhaps the most understandable war crime you can imagine. Um, Again, amazing scene, one of the two best scenes I've ever written. And at some point I realized I had to cut both of those scenes out of the novel because I couldn't write a novel that had as one of its topics the Holocaust with an, and avoid exploitation if I sent anything in the camps. I had to write around that. I couldn't go directly there because I couldn't do it without being sentimental and I couldn't do it without feeling like I was exploiting, that I was you know, one step away from a line of clothing. So what was I going to do, right? I needed, I knew I wanted to write about this. I had to purge this thing that was roiling in me. But I had to find out, figure out the right approach, a kind of way into the material that it will, would allow me, if you will, allow me to be incredibly grandiose, a more Zebaldian approach rather than the other. Which leads me to my second search term, which is art. So why Art. There is very famous advice given to writers, write what you know. Mark Twain is the one who said that, or Faulkner. People say different things. Somebody said it. Somebody somewhere said, write what you know. It's really good advice, right? Because what am I talking about? I'm talking about authenticity. I'm talking about lived experience and really being able to give the reader that sense of authenticity. And at first I took this advice. I mean, you heard what Vikram said. I wrote, I was a, a, a former federal defender turned stay-at-home mom, dying of boredom, and I took to writing, and I wrote a series of murder mysteries about a former fu- pe- federal public defender turned stay-at-home mom, dying of boredom, who started solving crime. So not, you know, and they, same number of kids, same husband, everything was virtually identical. So those were these murder mysteries that you see here, all of them very cutely titled. Um, And then I also wrote this novel uh, that we talked about before, Daughter's Keeper, that's a novel about the drug war and about mandatory minimums, something I knew about. And then Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, The Loss of a Baby, something I knew. Write what you know, write what you know. It's really, really great advice. But the problem is that most writers lead incredibly boring lives. Because writing is about sitting by yourself in a room, or now I have a tread desk, so standing by yourself in a room for hour after hour, and it it does not 
you know, doesn't give you a lot to say if you're really only going to write what you know. So there are writers who famously screw up their lives on purpose to give them something to write about. So Ernest Hemingway is one. And then Wonder Boy is a novel about, about, that my husband wrote about that very topic, screwing up your life in order to give you something to write about. But the thing is, I have four kids, and I can't afford to set fire to my life in order to give myself something to write about. So I had to come up with a new rule. Did you like that, the flames? My, my 12-year-old taught me how to do that. I'm very proud. So my new rule, which you can all take to heart, is forget what write what you know. Write what you want to know. Write what you can imagine. So in Red Hook Road, my, lab, my previous novel, I wrote about three things I knew nothing about but really, really, really wanted to learn about. So the first thing was classical music. I knew absolutely nothing about classical music and, in fact, had once said to my husband, oh, that's a beautiful piece of music. Who is it by? And he said, Beethoven. So I was starting at zero. I was starting at, I actually, my first book, my first research materials for, this, for Red Hook Road was The Idiot's Guide to Classical Music. I am not joking. It's very good, I have to tell you. I moved on to like audio lectures and memoirs of musicians and interviewed musicians and did all this stuff, but that's where I started. I also decided I was going to write about boat building, wooden boat building, something I knew nothing about, but that I wanted to know about. So I built up this vast reservoir of knowledge about boat building. And the other thing that I'd always wanted to know about and didn't know anything about was boxing. So I began to research boxing, and now I can provide color commentary on any boxing match, which, if I were a 21-year-old Cal student, I think would be really, really hot, but (laughs) is not so much now. So, But here's a funny thing about Red Hook Road and um, these topics, classical music, boat building, boxing. They all end up being metaphors for marriage. Because at heart, that's what that book is about. So art is another one of those topics that I know nothing, nothing about, but always wished I knew something about. I am the kind of person who goes to a museum and says, in the words of the immortal Peter Gabriel, I know what I like. That's embarrassing. You shouldn't do that anymore when you're a grown-up. It's pathetic. So I decided to write a novel that would force me to learn something about visual art. Okay, Hungary, even more random. Everyone says, oh, is your family from Hungary? No. My very close friend was named ambassador to Hungary, and I was trying to figure out a way to visit her and deduct the travel expenses from my taxes. <laughs> that's, that's really all it is. So here you have it. I sat down on my computer one day, and I Googled the words Holocaust, Hungary, and art, and I found the most astonishing story. One I had heard nothing about. The Hungarian gold train. So to tell you a little bit about the Hungarian gold train, first I need to set the stage. I need to tell you a little bit about what it was like to be a Jew in pre-Holocaust Hungary. Well, if you were a Jew in pre-Holocaust Hungary, you probably lived in Budapest, which was 23% Jewish. So Jewish, in fact, that Karl Luger, the notoriously anti-Semitic mayor of Vienna, nicknamed the city Judapest because there were so many Jews there. If you were one of the substantial Jewish minority living in Budapest, you would probably have attended one of the many opulent synagogues, including this one, the largest in Europe, the Dohani Street Synagogue, truly one of the most breathtaking buildings I've ever been in. You might have been a doctor or a lawyer because almost half of doctors and lawyers in Budapest were Jewish. Your money would have been invested by Jews. 88% of the members of the stock exchange were Jewish. 91% of the currency brokers. You would have spent time in your local beautiful coffee house reading books printed by Jews and written by Jews, newspapers written by Jewish journalists, edited by Jewish editors. Some, there were definitely poor Jews, but there are many middle-class and upper-class Jews. But the community as a whole was successful. It was secure. It was content. The women were in synagogue sisterhoods. There were feminists. Rosa Schwimmer, the most famous Hungarian suffragist, was a Jew. 
The streets of Budapest were full of Jewish businesses, and in fact, 90% of Hungarian industry was owned by a few closely related Jewish banking families. I mean, there were Jewish dignitaries and Nobel Prize winners and leading intellectuals and scientists and brilliant military officers, famous artists like Robert Kappa, who took this photograph. The thing, when I think about Budapest at the time, say, right before World War I, and I say all this, all this, it really reminds me personally of another city. It reminds me of New York. All the Jewish doctors and the lawyers and the currency brokers and the artists and the writers. It feels to me like New York, except for one important difference. In Budapest, over half of the Olympic gold medal winners were Jewish. Dominant Jewish athletes. If you are a Jew, that will blow your mind. <laughs> I mean, gold medalist Alona Elek, fencing, Jewish. You know, we had Mark Spitz when I was growing up, and that was like it began and ended there. Um, so now what happened in World War II? So in World War II, Hungary, as I hope you know, but you may not know, was an ally of Germany. And ironically, that actually protected the Jews of Hungary to a certain extent. For many, many years of the war, Hungary didn't put the Jews in ghettos or deport them to the concentration camps in Poland. It's true that the situation of the Jewish community grew ever more precarious as the war progressed. In 1938 and 1939, for example, the Hungarian government passed anti-Jewish laws, which, among other things, capped the number of Jews in professions. So many, many people lost their jobs. But by and large, the Jews of Hungary were protected from the fate of the rest of the Jews of Europe. Um, there were labor brigades. This is a photograph of the labor brigades. Forced labor on the Russian front. And 42,000 Jews were killed in those brigades. There were occasional massacres in the countryside. But there were no ghettos. There were no deportations. There were no camps. Up until 1944, Hungary's Jews lived in relative safety. It was only in the spring of 1944 when Hitler invaded Hungary that the dangers became intolerable. Um, among the first things that happened was the Hungarian Arrow Cross, which was essentially the fascist government of Hungary, essentially their sort of version of the Nazi party, forced the Jews to hand over their valuables. They were, edicts would come down that the Jews were to go stand in line at post offices, banks, and turn in their property, item by item. So one day there would be an announcement that you had to hand in your bicycles, and one day there would be an announcement that you had to hand in your jewelry, your telephones, your furs, your dishes. This photograph here is a propaganda photo of the Hungarian government meant to illustrate the stupendous wealth that the Jews were forced to turn over. Um, at the same time as this was going on, Eichmann and a very small group of SS, 20 officers and a staff of 100, arrived in Budapest. The Russians were advancing from the east, and Eichmann announced that he, had, while he knew that they had lost the war against the Allies, there was one war that the Axis powers could still win, and that was the war against the Jews. The first thing Eichmann did is he renovated the ovens at Auschwitz to substantially increase their capacity. And then he deported nearly half a million Jews in less than two months. Virtually the entire population of Hungary outside Budapest. Imagine that, half a million people deported in less than two months. They were deported to Auschwitz. Most of them were not even processed into the camps. They were sent directly to the gas. Every single person you see in this photograph, every one of these children was, was gassed immediately after. Um, at the same time, the Jews of Budapest, who were not by and large deported, but they were going through their own torment, disease, starvation, periodic massacres. You had a 50% chance of survival if you were a Jew in Budapest. You could find yourself as these women were gathered up randomly in the street, walked to the um, the shores of the Danube River, shot and thrown into the river. But a 50% of chance of survival was huge compared to the countryside where your chance of survival if you were a Jew was a mere 10%. Um, many of the Jews who survived in Budapest survived because of the courage of foreign government officials like Raoul Wallenberg of the Swedish embassy, um, which the Swedish embassy and some others tried to provide shelter and protection to the Jews of Budapest. 
Meanwhile, as all this is going on, the property of the Jews is being gathered, it's being sorted, much of it is being stolen, but much of the is still remains in the hands of this bureaucratic agency called the Jewish Property Office. Okay, so Russia's invading, the Russian government the Russian army is closing in on Budapest. You can see these are the Cyrillic letters, they're changing the name. Um, and Arpad Toldi, the bureaucrat in charge of the Jewish property office, concocts a plan to get this Jewish loot out of Hungary. He loads it onto a freight train and sends it off to Germany. So what was on the train? I mean, anything you can imagine. Gold, jewelry, gems, diamonds, pearls, watches, paintings, carpets, silverware, china, furniture, clothes, linens, porcelains, cameras, stamp collections, literally anything of value that the Jews had. The estimates of what it was worth vary wildly, but the low end is between 50 million to 120 million, which is adjusted for inflation between 570 million to 1.7 billion dollars. The high end, up to 4 billion dollars adjusted for inflation. Um, Toldi the head of the Jewish property office, skimmed a lot of the most valuable stuff from the train, the gems, the gold, the currency, and much of that was never found because he hid it in the Austrian countryside. What was found of the stuff that Toldi stole was found because he hid it in Austrian farms, and these Austrian milkmaids started doing things like showing up to market day wearing diamond tiaras... (laughs) And the French, who by then were in control of that area, were like, huh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why is she, you know, why is she milking the cow while looped in pearls? And they began to gather the stuff that Toldi had hid. And they, and they got some of it, not by any stretch of the imagination all of it. He, he and his family made off with most of it. But they did gather some. And they turned it over to the Hungarian government, which by then was a Soviet government, right, because they'd been invaded by Russia. And they said, okay, give this back to the people it was stolen from. Now, meanwhile, the Jews of Budapest who are alive, they have receipts, pieces of paper, saying what they turned in and when. So the Jews of Budapest are like, great, give it back to us. That's our stuff. And what happens is the, then the Soviet government says, yeah, who knows? Who knows who this belongs to? We're just going to keep it. Okay, so... This is all going on. Now, eventually, the Hungarian guards on this train, as the war ends, they basically start freaking out. The war's over, and they find themselves in possession of the accumulated wealth of a murdered people. And they realize this is not going to go so well for them. So what they do is they find some Americans, and they're like, um, why don't you take this? And we're going to go disappear into those DP camps among the other people, and you're never going to find us again. And that's essentially what happened. They turned it over to the American government, the American military, and in 1945, the American military moved the train to Salzburg and unloaded everything into a big warehouse, and that's when the drama really starts. Because the American military government then has to decide, what are they going to do with the property of all these dead Jews? At the time... There were about 850,000 Jews in displaced persons camps in Austria and Germany. There were survivors from all over Europe, other people as well, not just Jews, in fact, mostly not Jews, but those other people, the forced laborers, the German Volksdeutschen who had immigrated, all of those people, they had homes to return to. But when the Jews tried to return to their cities and their villages, they often had to confront pogroms, and Jews who had survived the camps were then murdered when they tried to go back to their houses. So they stayed in these DP camps, and it was a huge drain on American resources. The U.S. government, the uh, the military government, had to pay for food, clothing, education. If you'll note in this picture, these DP children are studying Hebrew, which you'll understand why in a moment. Um, There were Tens of thousands of orphans left without parents to care for them. And the Americans had to provide health care and emotional care. Um, And at the same time, the DPs, for the first time, they actually felt like they had a future. And they began making new lives, getting married. And there began to be tremendous pressure on the American military government by the refugee, refugee aid organizations to give them the assets from the gold train. They basically said, give it to us. We'll use it to help support these 850,000 Jewish, 850, Jewish DPs. 
But the Jews of Hungary, meanwhile, they want their stuff back, right? They have receipts. So they're saying, that's ours. You can just give that to the refugee aid organization. Give it to us. But remember what happened when the French gave stuff to the Hungarian government? None of it got to the Jews. And moreover, at this point, the Cold War has taken over for World War II, and Hungary is in the hands of the Russians, and the Russians are an American enemy, and the Americans don't want to give Russia or its puppet governments anything. So you have the refugee refugee aid organization saying, give it to us. You have the Jews of Hungary saying, are you out of your minds? That's our stuff. And then a third group comes forward a group called Mossad Bet, which has nothing to do with Mossad. It's just the same word. Um, at this time in Palestine, the British, there was a British mandate of Palestine. The British governed Palestine. And the British had put a stop to any immigration of Jews to Palestine um, during the war, after the war. And there began to be this huge push for illegal immigration to Palestine. And this group of young Jews from what they called the Yishuv, which means the settlement, ironically, of, of Jewish Palestine, came to Europe and began teaching the Jews in the, DPs, in the DP camps Hebrew and training them to escape over the Alps from, from, um, from Austria over the Alps to Italy, where they would then, then go to Palestine. And uh, virtually everybody wanted to go to Palestine. There was a survey done by one of the larger refugee aid organizations that asked the Jews in the DP camps to fill in their choice for where they wanted to go. And they were given two options, one, one and two. And for one, they wrote Palestine, almost everyone. And then many, many people just left the second blank. And then the, the um, surveys were returned to them, and they were told they, were, they had to fill in something in the second, at the second, for choice number two. And... Thousands of them wrote the word crematoria. They really wanted to go to Palestine. So after they would get to Italy, they would be loaded onto these huge ships to run the British blockade of Palestine. And if you've seen the movie Exodus or read the book, you know what I'm talking about. This was a tremendously expensive endeavor. The Jewish Agency, which was an organization at the time, went to the American military government and they said, listen, We're spending all this money, shh, don't tell the British, to smuggle these Jews to Palestine. You want to get rid of these Jews. They're costing a fortune in these DP camps. Give us the assets from the gold train, and we will use it to fund this illegal immigration. So you've got all of these different groups trying to get the property. And while this is taking place, the treasure, right, is just sitting in a warehouse, guarded carefully, correct? Not exactly. At the same time, you have these high-ranking U.S. Army officers who are now stationed in Europe to oversee post-war and Marshall Plan reconstruction. And they are living in houses taken from Austrian wealthy, sometimes nobility. And what the Austrians did before they turned over their houses is they stripped them bare. So the American general would get to his house and it would have nothing in it. No furniture, no sheets, no towels, no dishes. Um... So he's standing there in an empty house, and like the other end of the city, there's a warehouse full of china and silverware and glasses and rugs and tables and bed linen and everything they need to furnish their houses. So what do they start doing? Major General Harry Collins, who's the commander of the 42nd Infantry Division, that Rainbow Division, he starts to requisition items from the train to furnish his house. And I want to be really clear, this man is a hero. He was a hero in battle. He liberated Dachau. He is a hero. And he's also a thief. Because when the time came to return all that stuff, he didn't. He and all those other generals, when they went home to America, they just kind of took all that stuff with them. They didn't return it to the warehouse. And that, obviously, is the point which requisitioning becomes looting. Eventually, in 1948, there was an auction in New York City of what remained in the warehouse from that up to $4 billion worth of stuff. And the decision was made that the International Refugee Organization would get the assets. The receipts of that auction were $152,850. 
It's about $1.3 million adjusted for inflation, from $4 billion to $1.3 million. As soon as I read that, I knew this was what my novel, this was, the, the, this was the, going to be the backdrop of my novel. And I became incredibly interested in this idea. What is the value of a single candlestick like the ones I inherited from my great-grandmother? My bubba left Minsk with a pair of silver-plated candlesticks shoved up her skirt. What's the value of that? I mean, invaluable. I would never part with those for any amount of money. But like, not to sound like a MasterCard commercial, but what's the value of those candlesticks if the great-granddaughter never had a chance to be born? Or what's the value of hundreds of thousands of pairs of candlesticks when all the people who cared about them are dead? I mean, maybe the weight of the silver, maybe. And I I became really interested in this idea, and I knew that whatever story I told was going to be one that allowed me to explore this idea of, like, of the inherent value or valuelessness of property, the role of memory, of legacy, and, and the enduring nature of art, as opposed to the very tragically transient nature of life. A story about the Holocaust, but one in which I took a more Zebaldian approach. And Love and Treasure is that novel. It is set against the backdrop of the Holocaust, but none of it happens during the war. It traces a piece of property found on the gold train. It begins in the present day, moves back in time to 1945 and 1946 Salzburg, and then farther back in time to Budapest in 1913, before World War I, during that golden age of the Hungarian Jewish community. Um, I will tell you one more thing, which is that this, the story of the gold train was resolved, as many things are, in litigation, and eventually some survivors some lawyers sued on behalf of Hungarian survivors of the Holocaust, and the American government settled for a certain amount that was then distributed. Um, uh, You know, I think it was a... As all these litigations go, it was not a particularly satisfying outcome to anybody, but it was sort of the only outcome anyone could imagine. So that is the novel, and I'm going to let you... I'd love to take questions. Is that done? But um, is there, uh, did anybody have any questions or comments about the pe- period in history? I have a couple of Hungarians who were alive, who just barely during that time, who can perhaps provide corrections and critiques of my, my uh, historical presentation. Anybody have anything they want to say? What did I do? Uh, I did a tremendous amount of research. I traveled to Budapest. I um, traveled to Salzburg. I traveled to Dachau. Um, I took just amazing amounts of notes. I had two research assistants, a really remarkably lovely research assistant in Budapest, a, um, a graduate student in women's studies at the university there, who helped me while I was there and then for a year, more than two years afterwards looking for things. And then I had a graduate student in Salzburg that I took to calling Madchen because I felt after a while that she would have been very, very comfortable in Hitler's youth group for young women. Um, There was a constant battle over who was in charge of what I was going to write about, me or this 19-year-old Austrian girl. Um... I won, but like really just barely. Um, I, I, I did this, you know, I sifted through microfilms. I, you know, one of the things that was most interesting to me were not necessarily the articles in these newspapers, but the advertisements, anything to immerse myself in the time and the period. I looked at um, living histories and oral histories. But then very quickly I realized that the research, which was so intoxicating, was just an excuse not to write. Like if I kept researching, I could do it for the rest of my life and that I had to force myself to sit my butt, I don't know why it's doing that, we should just turn up, to sit my butt down and actually write. So I began to write the story um, and then sort of researched as I needed to and filled in. Um, it, 
it came, the different sections came, you know, were harder. The, the historical sections were the easiest to write, particularly the one that was set in 1913. Um, I remember, all I'm telling is nasty stories about other writers. I swear I don't do this that often. But I remember watching this, this very, very successful novelist on Charlie Rose, and she said, um, she said, I do not write, I channel. <laughs> and I thought, oh, what a load of horse but <laughs> when I sat down to write the third section, it's told from the point of view of a psychoanalyst, a middle-aged man, and that voice like knocked me over. I don't know where he came from, but I felt like I couldn't type fast enough to keep up with the voices in my head. It was one of the most magical writing experiences of my life um, and is my favorite section of the novel. It was super fun. And then when you're writing and you're writing well, things start to happen, like weird coincidences. Like all of a sudden, you needed something. Like I, I need this. The third section was missing something, some layer of, of maybe particularity. I, I didn't know what it was missing. And then I stumbled across this book about a group of a family of seven performing dwarves who were both saved and tortured by um, Mengele at Auschwitz. And as soon as I... And they were Hungarian. They were Hungarian-speaking, lived in what's now Romania, Transylvania. I looked at that and I thought, oh, I need that dwarf. So I like... So everything just kind of came at the moment that I needed it. It was pretty magical. And there are moments where... um, I was doing research in Hungary, and I had my daughter with me, and she struck up a conversation with a lovely gentleman who's here tonight at at a movie that I thought was very, very fascinating that she had never been so bored in her life. Um, She was 15, and it was like a a three-and-a-half-hour movie about Poland before World War II. Sorry, Soph. Um, And then I I freely poached parts of his family history for my novel, Um, uh, so, you know, things just kind of land when you need them, when you're writing well. When you're writing poorly, nothing ever comes at all, and you sit there alone or stand on your tread desk, walking slowly like a desiccated husk, wondering if you'll ever write again. So depressing. Anybody else? Well, I'm just wondering, the opposite of what you just said, um, since you wrote those two really great scenes, what are you going to do with them? Well, I put one of them up on my website, um, and the other, I just, nothing. It's just there. Maybe. It's hard to let go of things you write if you think they're good, but sometimes I think nothing is as good as you think. Um, But also, they would have ruined the book. They would have, like I said, I would have been, you know, I would have been at risk of running an ad for cute clothing at the Dachau Liberation well, I am, I've probably talked long enough. I am going to go and sit down somewhere and sign books. And you want to get your book signed because somebody just gave me this really cool peacock stamp. And I'm going to stamp them with this peacock stamp. Isn't that awesome? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.